week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Good day, Christina. Good day to you. <laughs> How's it going? Absolutely fantabulous. How about um, with you? Uh, love and life. Good. I'm bouncing. Are you? Yep. You're bouncing because of our guest today. Mm-hmm. I know that. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, the, greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. And today, we're going to look at allergies and immunology. It seems to be a very big topic uh, all around the world at all times, but. Recently in the news, there was uh, the AMA and the uh, Society of Allergists, Immunologists, and Asthma uh, made a few statements. One, that, that uh, certain people that believed they were allergic to penicillin, they tested them at a health fair, and most of them weren't. Hmm. So uh, it seems like there's a lot of question there. And then when the allergists uh, tested internists and primary care doctors, they found that the primary care and internist didn't have quite the understanding of allergy and what it's all about that uh, the allergists would like us to have. So because of that, we decided to uh, bring a very special guest, Michael J. Roberts, Dr. Roberts. He's a specialist in allergy, immunology, and asthma. Uh, He has been a a past assistant clinical professor at the uh, West LA VA, and he still teaches at uh, West LA VA. So for 31 years, he's been practicing allergy and immunology, and we're going to introduce him in a minute. But before we do, Christina, if anyone wants to get in touch with him or us, how do they do that? Absolutely. So anytime during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Be sure to click submit, of course. But if you're listening to this, you know, through your uh, mobile device, give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And of course, be sure to leave your contact information and we will make sure that your question or comment reaches our special guest or Dr. Woolman, and we will definitely get back to you. Thank you, Glenn. You're welcome, Christine. I also want to add another little part to that. Uh, certainly comments on each show are very important to us, but also if anybody has an idea for a show or something that they're very concerned about in their own medical uh, process or they're interested in knowing more things uh, about certain diseases or illnesses or any aspect of medicine, uh, give us a call or let us know and we'll be happy to schedule some kind of a show. We'll do the research and we'll see if we can get something uh, out there for you. We look forward to your ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Michael J. Roberts, allergy, immunology, and asthma. Greetings, Dr. Roberts. Greetings. <laughs> Pleased to be here. 
Hello, Dr. Roberts. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, anytime. <laughs> he said that. <laughs> He's in trouble now. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking tomorrow, tomorrow morning, we'll do the second part of the show. <laughs> Michael, as the medical guide, I always like to uh, give our viewers and listeners an idea of where we're going to go. So at the beginning, we're going to just find out a little bit about you and your life and what got you interested in medicine and healing and uh, eventually into your specific uh, specialty. Then we're going to get into maybe some of the credentials of how you become an allergist. And then we want to get into the meat of the process here. And hopefully no one's allergic to the meat of this process. So uh, we're going to talk about allergies and immunology. And if we have some time, we'll talk about a little bit of the traveling that you do uh, on behalf of your medicine and career. How's that okay. sound to you? Sounds good. Good. So let's start out. Uh, what made you decide to become a healer? What were the influences that brought you into this specialty or field? Well, you know, I guess um, even though I don't have allergies, everybody in my family is allergic. And uh, as a young one, I used to go with my brother to his allergist when he got allergy shots. And what I always thought was the coolest thing that this allergist, who happened to be actually chief of allergy at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, he had a saltwater fish tank with white seahorses. Now, remember, this is about 55 years ago. And I was so intrigued by these white seahorses in the office, I thought, this is the thing to do. So, again, maybe it was six, seven. And so, since then, it was always in the back of my mind that allergists have white seahorses. So, uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not great. yellow, but albino seahorses. So, you know, I sometimes took the uh, the path less traveled, and as I, you know, did my undergraduate work, and I can't say that I was a pre-medical major, I wasn't, I was a geography major, which leads to my travels, but I'm also a pretty practical person, so as I was nearing the end of my undergraduate uh, time, I think, well, what am I going to do? And I like being with people, I like listening and uh, and medicine just seemed to make sense. I mean, there was a practical aspect that uh, I think we agree that uh, medicine is uh, is a nice way to make a living. Things have changed, obviously, over the years. But um, so as I applied to medical school, and I can't say that I was successful the first time around, and I had a very non-traditional background, not having going to an ungraded university. But we persevered, and I ended up at the University of Miami, and while I was doing certain rotations, I really became intrigued, especially with the asthmatics that would be in the hospital. My brother had asthma, and and so that's kind of what kind of led me in the path, that medicine, and then the specialty of allergy, immunology, and white seahorses. <laughs> Beautiful. And I did get a tank with white seahorses when I opened up my office. This brings up an important question for me. If you found out that another specialty had unicorns, would you have gone into that? <laughs> I'm allergic to horses. Only kidding. <laughs> so, so, so and part of the, the, the allergy immunology, it's such a global field. It, it touches so many people, and uh, it's multi-generational, uh, and it's fun. What is the actual training that's required to become a specialist in allergy all the way from the beginning 
Okay. So anybody, any of our listeners that are out there that are thinking of becoming something like you're doing, they would want to know what path, what do they have to do? Uh, you know, obviously there's undergraduate education followed by medical school. And then in order to uh, apply for an allergy immunology fellowship, this follows either training in internal medicine or pediatrics. So one has to has to have completed either a pediatric internship or residency, which is typically three years, or an internal medicine internship and residency, which is also three years. And then an allergy immunology fellowship is usually either two or three years. Now, I, we feel sorry sometimes for the family practitioners because here are uh, folks who have training in pediatrics and internal medicine as well as OB, yet they are excluded from applying for an allergy immunology fellowship. Now, there's talk in the future that things will be, able, will be broadened to allow uh, board-certified family practitioners or people who have finished their training in family practice to also be able to participate in official allergy immunology programs. Very interesting. It's uh, obviously a lot of training. And the training, just to let people know, the training never stops. We all go, we go to many courses to keep up with the newest and the greatest, right? Correct. So is there still magic in it for you? You've been doing this for 31 years. For 31 years. And, you know, when I go to the office and see patients and patients say, thank you, that's the magic. Mm. Uh, there's so many, as we all recognize, lots of external pra- pressures these days. I mean, Medicine is changing. As I said, I'm a dinosaur. The solo practitioners, that's, that's a dying breed. You know, in the future, there may be little niche areas where solo practitioners can still, you know, do their thing. But for the most part, you know, I suspect in five years, seven years, everybody will be aligned with larger clinics, academic or different hospital groups. And, I mean, there's lots of uh, external pressure to uh, force those changes. And not all of that is bad, but I'm still doing my thing as a solo practitioner. Uh, actually, I, I have an understanding that you share an office with uh, another specialist. Is that true? I share the office with my wife, who's an OBGYN. Oh, great. So we have a mom and pop store. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, I'm trying to think of how you can go for all-stop shopping. I know. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, At least I know I could. Right. <laughs> I don't know about you, Glenn, uh, right. but sometimes I know I could. <laughs> sometimes I walk in the wrong door and I go, whoops, okay. Just <laughs> so as I, as I said at the beginning of the show, and you're probably familiar with this, where so many people that thought they had allergies to penicillin and, and they were tested at this health fair and found out that almost 90 or more percent actually didn't have it. Uh, are you familiar with that study, or did you uh, hear about any of that? Most definitely, because most. As, I t- as I take my medical history and I ask, what do you think you're allergic to? And so many patients put penicillin, and I ask, well, what happened? My mom told me 40 years ago I had a reaction, or, uh, or I, I was treated for an infection, and seven days later I broke out in a rash, and so they walk around with this label of penicillin allergy, and penicillin is still an, and that class of antibiotic is still an incredibly valuable antibiotic. And so if somebody walks around with a label, 
So clearly, whatever physician is not going to prescribe a penicillin-related product. And so, so much of what I do is prove to people that they're not allergic. And the numbers you mentioned, 90 to 95% of patients who walk around saying they're allergic to penicillin are not allergic to penicillin. Hmm. And there were also some studies that, that showed that internists and primary care doctors didn't quite really know about allergy the way that you as an allergist would like us to know, even in treatments. So I think let's start with a definition of allergy. What is an allergy? An allergy, people have to recognize, is part of the immune system, and it's an overactive part of the immune system. The immune system's reacting to a protein in an adverse fashion that maybe 70% of patients won't react. So it truly is an immunologic process, something we can document, something we can measure. What confuses a lot of patients is that a lot of individuals can have allergy-like symptoms but it's not an immunologic response. So there are irritant factors that can trigger respiratory symptoms. Um, there are a lot of other things that can, I mean, people can react to weather changes and temperature changes and barometric pressure changes. But in the very narrow definition of allergy, it truly is an overactive part of the immune system. Now, a lot of patients say, oh, I have a weak immune system. Or oh, why? You say that. I have allergies. I said, well, your immune system is overreacting to things rather than underreacting to things. What makes it do that? What makes it so that if, if I and somebody with allergies walk through a field of fresh blooming flowers and I feel fine, uh, pollens might get into my system and my system will recognize that they're a foreign body, but the person next to me also will recognize they're a foreign body but I will have no reaction. They will have runny eyes, runny nose, red eyes, itching, and some difficulty breathing. What is it uh, that makes the immune system hyperactive? Do we know that? Well, you know, it's obviously a lot of it based on genetics and um, exposures, but trying to make a somewhat complicated uh, situation simple, there are certain uh, immunoglobulins in the blood, specifically called IgE, immunoglobulin E, that really is the core of the allergic response. And if somebody is genetically predisposed to allergies, they have receptors on certain cells that are very specific to the proteins in, whether it's in plant pollen, animal danders, food, or drugs. So if you're genetically predisposed and have these receptors, when you're exposed to that specific protein, it binds the receptors and cells in general called mast cells, which contain histamine and other mediators, they get released. And depending on your target, whether it's your nose or respiratory tract or your lungs or your skin or your gastrointestinal tract, you'll have symptoms. That's why many people prescribe, because you said histamines are produced, this this. Uh reactive chemical. That's why people prescribe antihistamines, right? Correct. I mean, there are antihistamines for years have been the mainstay of treating allergy symptoms. Mm -hmm. So people, people talk and they say, oh, I have an allergy to milk. Every time I drink milk, my stomach gets upset. Is that an allergy? It 
could be more, but more likely it's a lactose intolerance that the inability to break down the milk sugar lactose because they're lacking the enzyme lactase. But there are going to be patients who have an immunologic response to the milk protein, and they could have similar, similar symptoms, but more often than not, they'll also have respiratory symptoms or maybe cutaneous skin symptoms and hives. So how does one find out if it's an allergy or an intolerance? Okay. Uh, as far as allergy testing, you know, things are basically to usually two choices. You know, for a hundred years now, you know, skin testing has been the um, you know definitive uh, diagnostic tool in which uh, small amounts of, of of the quote offending agent can be placed on the skin, and the skin is pricked. And if you have the receptors, you will release mediators, specifically histamine, and 15 to 20 minutes later, you'll see an itch like a mosquito bite. There's also blood testing, and this is where things get a little confusing. There are valid blood tests called immunocap or RAS tests that are based on IgE. So through the blood, you can identify uh, you know, the, the, the responses, but Unfortunately, there are a lot of blood tests that are marketed to diagnose allergies that have no no validity. And I see too many patients who bring in a binder of their blood test that says, I'm allergic to all these things. And that's what my um, chiropractor, and not to impugn chiropractors, but certain alternative care practitioners often buy into the non-valid blood allergy tests that really don't provide any useful information. You know, you, t- you, you talk about that. And for me, in, in my practice, it seems to me that I'm seeing so many po- more people that have allergies and so many more things we're allergic to. And in my analysis of it, uh, I come up with three possibilities, and I'd like you to uh, respond to this. First possibility is that our testing has gotten a lot better, so we're recognizing things that uh, we didn't know before. The second is some people talk about that when children get vaccinated as, uh, at a very early age with uh, an incredible number of vaccinations right now, that that's changing the immune system and it's potentially causing more allergies. And the third is all of the chemicals and the GMO foods that we're eating are different than our bodies are used to, and hence the immune system is getting hyperactive and going uh, professionally term wacky. So what's going on here? Are there really more allergies? Is it better testing? Is it the vaccinations? Is it the foods and, and chemicals in different products that we see, like Ticlosan and the antibacterial uh, soaps that we're using and in latex and things like that? Starting with the first, I think diagnostics have improved. So, and there's more awareness. So yes, better diagnostics pick up more individuals who truly have allergy symptoms. Two, who truly have allergies, not only just the symptom. I think, uh, there, there, I think it's documented. There has been a, an increase in true allergies. There's very little evidence to support that, um, you know, genetically modified foods or even vaccines really play a role in increasing the evidence, the increase in documented allergies. You know, allergy 
it's very complex, and there's a lot that we don't know. But looking at controlled studies, it's really very difficult to document that, yes, there are lots of vaccines. Uh, yes, we're being exposed to more toxins. But it's really hard to support that you know, in the review of the literature. Now, you could also ask, well, why? Why, why are people getting more, uh, why more apparently allergies? And that's where, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence to show what's called the hygiene hypothesis, that as society has progressed, if you want to call it progress, environments in the house often are cleaner, less exposure. Like we know that farm-raised kids have fewer allergies than most likely in an urban, suburban environment. And earlier exposure to dirt, more infection during childhood, probably changed the immune response to what should be innocuous thing to less than innocuous. So that's really, uh, now we really believe that these clean freaks in the end can be <laughs> detrimental as far as uh, allergies uh, what has changed also, I mean, just in my 31 years of practice, it used to be that, oh, if you have a family history of allergies, you know, don't get a cat, don't get a dog. That only enhances the likelihood that your children will have allergies. Now the evidence is that, well, earlier exposure to cats and dogs decreases the likelihood that your children, if they're genetically predisposed to have allergies, that they're less likely to be allergic. Uh, that's uh, good, but there's still you know, more, more to learn right now. We're certainly putting out a lot of things out there in our environment that probably are causing some reactions, which, which brings up a question for me. Are allergists ever part of the process with the FDA or with the environmental protection agencies? Do they have, have a voice in any of that to talk about things that may be harming us? FDA, definitely. Uh, EPA, I don't know. Okay. I mean, back to the environmental things, it's not to discount any of the environmental factors. There is evidence that increased exposure to uh, diesel exhaust has a unique property to turn on the production of IgE. As I mentioned, IgE mm -hmm. is sort of the allergy uh, gamma globin. So, uh, again, we know that there definitely are environmental factors. It's hard to really pin things down right now. Let's talk about the immune system for a few moments. Uh, I go to uh, a lot of health uh, food stores and a lot of health fairs and talk to lots of people. And I'm always being bombarded by people at the health food uh, stores and at these and at these shows where they provide uh, teas and other drinks that are immune boosters. And I hear that a lot. And in my study. I'm not sure about that. What's your thinking about immune boosters? Can we drink a tea and boost our immune system? Well, uh, to answer that question, again, it's, it's the immune system is so complex. And remember, it's immune system. It's not a single entity. Correct. And so it's like a finely tuned watch, or it's like a watch in general. There are many moving parts, and uh, things have to function in harmony and balance. So it's really highly unlikely that a single ingredient a single herb, a single vitamin, a single supplement really makes a is an immune booster. 
And, you know, the question comes up, patients ask me, you know, is there something I can do to improve my immune system? And I said, listen, I'd love to, I'd love to show you a magic bullet. I'd love to tell you to drink uh, uh, whatever tea. But we know there's so many unanswered questions, but it's, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. So if you had an opportunity to drink a tea that would boost your immune system and not cause harm, you, you'd be okay with that? But Without a doubt. Go for it. Uh, okay. Excellent. Uh, Christina, any thoughts? Um, I, I'm finding all this really interesting, and I, I love what you said about uh, the cleanliness and, and things. I, I work very closely with a lot of children every day at school because I serve breakfast every day <laughs> to kids. Mm-hmm. And it's been very interesting to me, even though I had a lot of allergies um, growing up and I had the asthma, et cetera, down the line. Um, I always challenged myself because of that fact of if you keep it away from me, I'm not going to get used to it. That's, that's what kept going on in my head as a child. So I would actually expose myself to dogs and expose myself to cats and I would break out in the hives and <laughs> everything. But after a while, it stopped. It stopped. And, and I have to admit that um, when I listen to, to a lot of parents these days um, about cleanliness, the minute a child reacts to something, they take it away and they never bring it back. And it's, it's, it's that clean and it's that sort of like that cut. Oh, my child's reacted to this don't have it anymore. And, you know, it's like they have a bite of breakfast or something and then they get all swollen around the mouth and it's like, oh, no, 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 you're, they're allergic to it. Don't have it anymore. It's like, uh, do you know which ingredient it is? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I don't know, maybe we've become overly protective. Do you see that a lot? Yes, I do. And I mean, what you mentioned is constantly challenge yourself. Well, the whole process of what's called immunotherapy, you know, people call it shot treatment, allergy shots, but you know, the, the proper name is immunotherapy, is introducing smaller amounts and gradually increasing the dose over time mm-hmm. to um, allow the body to become tolerant. Now, there are a whole range of immunologic responses to uh, explain that, mm-hmm. but uh, it's like tomorrow, um, scheduled and planned to do an aspirin desensitization on a patient. And the whole process is starting at low doses and over time gradually increasing to the point where they can tolerate a full aspirin or ideally two aspirins. Mm. So what you you detailed, I mean, it's true. Of course, you always have to walk the fine line. And somebody says, well, when I do eat peanuts, I call 911. It's not likely by going back, well, I'll have a quarter of a peanut, and then I'll have half a peanut. That's probably not a smart thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. But Just have the whole bottle. <laughs> yeah. People do that, and we usually end up seeing them in the emergency department. Room. Exactly. Right. Let's, let's uh, go through a process, Michael, of of a person that is existing in society and suddenly starts seeing things that make them think that they have an allergy and uh, maybe they've gone to a primary care doctor and the primary care doctor wants to send them to someone. How should someone prepare for a visit to an allergist? Is there anything people can do to prepare for that? 
Well, it's just to have a coherent history. I mean, that kind of uh, history is still important, even in this day and age of technology, where too often newer physicians and even in their training have lost contact with the patient. They no longer touch the patient. They're behind their keyboard and their computer typing things in and have like zero contact with the patient. But a history still is primary. I mean, physical examination, I'm not going to say doesn't play a role. It does, but it probably isn't as important as a history. We're using our history to provide us with a a roadmap, decide to make decisions, you know, what's the next step from a diagnostic standpoint. And so that's, so as far as specific preparation, I'm not sure any specific preparation, you know, different offices may instruct a a new patient not to take any antihistamine three to four days before a visit because Mm. they're more likely to do some diagnostic allergy skin test on that first visit. So that would probably be the only real preparation from a medicine standpoint that, well, I guess I shouldn't take my antihistamine. Mm-hmm. Because the Good doctor point. may want to do uh, a test. Good point. Now, so you're saying basically maybe even keep a journal or get an idea of when I eat this, these are the symptoms I have, and, and get that to you when they come for their first visit, right? Tell the yes. story correctly. Yes. Correct. So what? So what can they then, once they get to you, and after you've taken the history and physical, uh, what can they expect from uh, their first visit? Okay. Uh, from a food standpoint or a drug standpoint, if somebody has had significant reactions, we talk about uh, having an epinephrine autoinjector. I mean, that epinephrine adrenaline is truly the drug of choice for any kind of significant acute reaction. So the expectation should be they're probably going to walk out of the office with a uh, prescription after having been shown the appropriate use of uh, an epinephrine autoinjector. And then from a diagnostic standpoint, we do um, talk about what kind of tests should we do, uh, whether it's skin tests or blood tests. And the one advantage of blood testing, it's unaffected by any medication. Skin testing does give us more of an immediate answer. Even though they test sort of to the same thing, there are situations where we end up doing skin tests followed by blood tests or vice versa if, we're, if the initial testing doesn't seem to provide the answer that makes sense. So I have a question about the skin tests. Are they the same ones as they had years ago where they kind of inject little um, little allergens into the skin uh, and watch it puff up? Things have changed. I mean, the technique that I've been using probably for at least 20, 25 years is actually, uh, I would have brought a, a device. It's a plastic device with like eight prongs on it. And so the drops of the allergen are put on the prong, and it's pressed into the skin. There are no needles. It really is not traumatic. The, uh, it's, it's sort of the same thing. We're introducing the allergen to the top layer of skin, but in a much less traumatic way. Uh, I rarely do what's called intradermal tests, where uh, like a, a small syringe or the needle is actually put under the skin. So there's evidence to show that intradermals produce too many false positives. So you have a positive reaction. And this is where history comes in. There's so many patients who will have positive reaction, but they're not clinically relevant. Somebody may be sensitized, but they're not truly allergic. 
what happens to those people? What do they What do they do? They don't have to go and buy the bracelet that says they're allergic, but what do they do? Well, a lot of times uh, I'm I'm pretty aggressive in doing challenges in the office. That mm-hmm. you know, again, part of what I enjoy doing is proving to people that you know what you're not allergic to this. You've walked through your life saying I can't eat this, I can't eat this. I'm on such a restricted diet, but I said, wow, I don't think that's the case. And where it gets difficult, especially in a private practice situation, because typically we do what we call open challenges. I'm not hiding the food into some gel capsule or something. So, you know, as you know, the mind is a very powerful tool. There's a belief system. People have belief systems that they're going to react. So somehow you often have to kind of work around that belief system and do a challenge and say, listen, you just ate the equivalent of five almonds and nothing happened. You're not allergic to almonds, <laughs> even though your blood test or your skin test showed you're allergic to almonds. Mm-hmm. Which can, you know, to make things more complicated, there's a lot of cross-reactivity between the proteins in certain foods and airborne pollens. Mm-hmm. So patients who may have allergic rhinitis, and yes, they're allergic to tree pollens and grasses and, and weeds, and yes, they have allergy testing done, and it shows that they have a reaction to wheat. And, ah, I can't eat wheat. But wheat is a grain. Grains are grasses. So it's not unusual that somebody definitely is allergic to grass pollen, but because of cross-reactivity, mm-hmm. you're seeing a positive reaction on the skin or the blood, but mm-hmm. you're not allergic to that wheat. Stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so much of what I do is really based on education, trying to convince people that ideally with some scientific knowledge that these are things they should be concerned about and these are things that they shouldn't be concerned about and live your life. Oh, great. Yeah, that must be a great feeling to have people that have been avoiding tomato sauce or pizza or many other things over their whole lifetime, and then they find out that they're okay with it because they've had these, as you said before, these totally restricted diets. That's a great thing. And that's where, the thank, and that's where the thank yous come in. That kind of is the magic for me. When somebody says, thank you, doctor, this, you really helped me out. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's brilliant. I, I I could never understand it because in in my generation when they did the allergy test, literally I was allergic to everything. And I'm and I I asked. I said I was like 13 years old. I said, "How can I not be? You're shooting it right into my skin." <laughs> and I've got sensitive skin. <laughs> I'm going to cough up anything right. you do. I've got I had eczema, I had sensitive skin. And the minute you poke any needle, even for blood tests, I would welt up. And so, that's where the false positives and what we call yeah. dermographia, that, that uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of skin testing, uh, you know, they're over-interpreted. And that's mm. where the history comes in. If somebody says, well, I had a positive test to food X. Well, what happens when you eat it? Nothing. Don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, there are people that do have some serious problems, and one of them, the extreme that we always used to see in the emergency department is anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock. Mm. Uh, that's the extreme example of, of, a, of a true allergic reaction. Would you go over that? Well, anaphylaxis is just basically generalized allergic reaction involving multiple uh, organ system, so cardiovascular, drop in blood pressure, uh, bronchoconstriction, so asthma-like responses, laryngeal edema, vocal cord swell, so can't breathe, cutaneous symptoms, uh, you know, hives, angioedema, which is just the generalized swelling. So uh, anaphylaxis is the involvement of multiple targets. Certainly, 
can be life-threatening. And that's where epinephrine is the lifesaver, appropriate and early use of epinephrine saves lives. And that's where the different devices that people should carry, you know, if they're allergic to certain foods that uh, sometimes are hidden in foods. I mean, peanut being number one, tree nuts number two, shellfish probably number three, fish fish number four, and then you start getting into uh, the other thing. The same thing with there are those patients who have unexplained episodes of anaphylaxis. You do every test up the wazoo and you can't document every anything, but periodically, several times a year, they're calling nine one one because they can't breathe and they're swelling, and you know that's frustrating for the patient, frustrating for the physicians. I mean, we're still somewhat limited from a diagnostic standpoint, and uh, that's again where history and being a detective, and that's so much of what I do is being a detective. In all my years of medical school, I was never able to find the wazoo. How does someone put something up the wazoo? <laughs> okay. uh, you're right. That's um, hadn't thought about that. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, maybe there's a whole new specialty. <laughs> wazoo medicine. Okay. Wazoo. Was your medicine? So we talked. We talked about the most extreme uh, type of reaction, anaphylaxis, and the treatment for that. So, what other types of treatments do uh, you offer to people when they do come in with a true allergy? What are the you know, things that you go through with them? Well, if you can identify something that you can manipulate in the environment or diet, that's the uh, choice number one. I, I tell patients, I'm trying to find something that you can control, that's something you can eliminate from your environment or you can eliminate from your diet, which would minimize symptoms, minimize need for medication. If somebody is having, um, if they truly is allergic to things they can't control, pollens, things they won't control, cats, dogs, then you're left with Options. Option number one, pharmacotherapy. What medicines are safe? What band-aids can we find to treat the symptoms? Option number two can be immunotherapy, which has no role in food allergy, but definitely has role in airborne uh, exposure, where sort of we can develop tolerance by injecting small amounts, increasing over time, decreasing the body's uh, production of the inflammatory mediators that cause the symptoms. So the goal of immunotherapy is over time, minimize symptoms, also minimize the need for medication. So there's environmental control, there's dietary, potentially dietary control, there's pharmacotherapy, medicines, there's immunotherapy, really trying to get to the root of the problem. We've interviewed a number of uh, homeopathic uh, practitioners and naturopathic practitioners who believe in the concept that a very small amount of, uh, of something that's causing a problem can actually help the problem. And it really sounds in a, in a sense that allergy and homeopathy have some agreement there. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, initially, yes. But the, from the allergy perspective, the goal is to gradually significantly increase the amount you're exposed to to generate an immunologic response that can be permanent. Whereas my understanding with homeopathy is the ongoing exposure to very small amounts somehow magically reduces the symptoms, but we know with the amounts that are given, it's not going to cause a permanent change in the immune response. How do we know when that change happens, that permanent change? Well, if, um, often it's based just on clinical response, that uh, 
I'm doing better. I can mow the grass without uh, sneezing and dripping. Uh, there may be a rationale down the line to repeat tests. So in theory and in practice, if you were to repeat skin testing after somebody has been on allergy immunotherapy for several years, you should see a much smaller response. I know that you have uh, done a lot of traveling, and some of that traveling has been uh, traveling as a uh, a physician. You've been to different parts of uh, South America and Panama. You've been in some of the jungles where you've been with you've been with the gorillas. You've been with the orangutans. You've been into places all around the world where you've treated people uh, in faraway places. Do these people have the same allergies that we do? Same immune system, or are they different in different parts of the world? Uh, immunologically, it's probably the same, even though malnutrition certainly can impact the uh, the immune system. Uh, interesting, when I was doing, as a Trek physician in um, Nepal, really we were supposed to be providing services for the other Trekkers, but we were only providing services for the Sherpas. <laughs> 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 so, so the trackers were fine, but the Sherpas were always constantly coming up. Oh, doctor, you know, can you help me with this? Uh, you know, what uh, I, I'm not saying. I, what started my well, I was a geography major, so I always had an interest in um, traveling. But it kind of all started in Miami, where as a uh, doing a tropical medicine elective with the Kuna Indians in uh, Panama, mm. uh, that was eye-opening, enlightening, uh, incredibly educational, incredibly exciting, and that kind of really stimulated going off the beaten path. What do you mean by eye-opening? Well, just uh, especially when um, we were trekking across the Darien jungle to see some of the isolated villages where tuberculosis was a big problem. Leprosy was a big problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that you're just not seeing a whole lot, even though Miami is a very special place where you see everything uh, as a multicultural place. Mm-hmm. But generally, you wouldn't be seeing leprosy and you wouldn't be seeing active TB. You wouldn't be seeing uh, Chagas disease. You wouldn't be. Uh, and so that from that end, just seeing things that you read about, but now you're doing hands on. Mm. The Darien jungle, that's pretty uh, impressive. That's a pretty uninhabited, unexplored area. A lot of danger there. How was that? It was amazing. It's the only place to this day where the Pan American Highway does not run through. So uh, still the the open spot of the Pan American Highway stops the Darien jungle. But uh, yeah, uh, we were led, one of our, uh, quote, our leader, who uh, he was a uh, ex-Green Beret, and when we were hiking into the, uh, to get to one of these isolated uh, tribal outposts, our guides who were carrying all the supplies, they ran away. So there was one night that we were just out there, and literally we were tree huggers for a day because it was kind of going up the mountain. And the only way of not sliding down was like holding onto <laughs> a tree. And when we found our guides the next day, he's like, hey, guys, like, uh, why? Oh, you guys are too slow. This is a haunted mountain. We can't stay here at night. So, uh, <laughs> hey, this is part of travel. This is part of excitement. And uh, um, it was great. You know, I, to this day, uh, I, look ba- I look back fondly as kind of the initiation of some of my travel experiences. Did you, did you see uh, examples of allergic reactions on those kind of travels? And 
when you would get to these tribes, did they have their own treatments for allergic reactions? By the time we were at the tribes, uh, there had been a very big missionary influence over the years. So they have they had some awareness and exposure to Western medicine. So, um, for better or worse, they really weren't relying very much on uh, indigenous treatment. As far as allergic reactions, uh, that we would see a lot of skin reaction, true allergies to insect bites, fire ants, uh, scabies. Actually, the uh, this whole travel trip was really based on the scabies research project, but it just branched out to providing general medical care. You also went to Rwanda and saw the mountain gorillas. You're in Borneo with the orangutans. These are primates. Do primates... Uh, like the gorillas and orangutans, have allergic reactions to anything? Uh, yes, they do. I, I can't give you details, but you know, there are relatives, and there's immunologically, there's not all that difference. And especially with the gorillas, uh, there were very strict instructions that we were not to touch the gorillas because there's definitely a transmission of uh, uh, human disease and viral infections. And uh, not that We'd be touching the gorillas anyway, but uh, we'd be pretty close contact. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I have my primate things. <laughs> you didn't do any skin testing on, on no, orangutans or anything no, like that? No, no, they're just uh, the, the beautiful redheads, you know. It's just <laughs> <laughs> Christina, tell me something. Tell you something? No, I don't yeah. want to tell you something. Well, <laughs> I'm I'm so interested in uh, uh, Dr. Roberts' travels and and running into all these uh, indigenous cultures. <laughs> uh, well, we're, that's we're a whole heading, other show, you know. Right, we're heading to Vietnam and Myanmar in three weeks, so uh, that's, wow. uh, we're doing the Galapagos and Ecuador and Panama again. First time I've been in Panama in thirty six years this summer. So now, yeah. now when you travel, are these medical based trips? Generally not. You no, know, recently this is just. Family. Wonderful. Just family trips. Mm, yeah. mm, wonderful. Are there, you know, a lot of times in medicine and in the world, people have folklore and stories and myths about things. Are there any myths in the field of allergy that you would like to bust right now? There are a lot of myths. <laughs> That's a whole other show. That's, <laughs> uh, um, if you're allergic to radio contrast media, IVP dye, therefore you're allergic to shrimp. Wrong. Even the, ra ah. even, even the radiologist uh, uh, will tell patients, oh, if somebody has had a reaction to IVP dye, CT, MRI dyes, oh, you better not eat shrimp. Because, or if, conversely, if somebody says they're allergic to shrimp, oh, I must be allergic to hmm. dye for the studies. Hmm. Wrong. So that's like Mythbuster number one. That's a great one. Give us a couple more. Uh, if you're allergic to peanuts, you must be allergic to all nuts. Well, peanuts are not nuts, they're legumes. So even though tree nuts are also highly allergenic, mm. just because you're allergic to peanuts doesn't mean you're allergic to walnut. Conversely, if you're allergic to walnut, doesn't mean you're allergic to peanuts. Yes, there are people who are allergic to tree nuts and peanuts. So a lot of what I find very rewarding, especially in dealing with children, that, you know, Tommy can't eat peanut butter, but we can't give him almond butter, we can't give him this. I said, why? Well, he's allergic to peanuts. He can't eat nuts. Mm -hmm. Wrong. Uh -huh. let's, let's, let's document that. And then if they have a negative test to tree nuts, I will do challenges in the office. But, but also, I mean, I find that 
a lot of people who buy those nut butters, they don't realize the other ingredients that are all mixed into those those peanut butter. I mean, when people tell me, oh yeah, my son eats peanut butter, Skippy, and I'm going, really? <laughs> That's not real peanut butter. You know, it's like, <laughs> right? It's like, you're, you're not even testing the true true you know, butter so to say and also there's so much cross contamination i mean you read i mean yes. some of the labeling truly is is legalese that and so what i try to educate patients that uh that they found so restricting well i can't this says manufactured in a plant that also processes mm-hmm. peanuts i'm allergic to peanuts and you know what i tell them is, is listen it's probably just legal protection and until proven otherwise, I think you can eat that food. Obviously, if you have a reaction, we'll review that. But then again, they should be carrying their epinephrine auto injector anyway. Right. So uh, I'm pretty aggressive in challenging patients with exposing them to foods that, after 31 years of experience and intuition, that I don't mm-hmm. think they'll react. Mm-hmm. How old, Christina? Did you have another question? I, I do because um, um, it's the question about asthma and how it's linked to allergies, and if it's com- totally linked to allergies. Certainly, in children, the vast majority of children who have asthma tend to have allergies. Mm-hmm. In adult onset asthma, and those patients who never had any asthma issues until their thirties, forties, fifties. More often than not, there is not a specific allergy. The mm. you know people always talk about, oh, am I going to outgrow my asthma? And uh, and it's kind of like a, a two humped curve that um, we see significant symptoms during childhood, during adolescence, young adult years. Many patients, I won't say most patients, many patients, they become less symptomatic. Mm. Some of those patients that never seem to come back. There are those patients that as they get into their twenties, thirties, forties, up. It's coming back. I'm not sure. We really don't have an explanation for that. Mm. Uh, I will see patients say, oh, I outgrew my asthma. I haven't used an inhaler in 30 years. But I said, certainly you're not symptomatic, but I could do certain tests to prove that your airways are still super sensitive. You don't need to be treated. I'll ask, well, I bet when you get a cold, you cough for two or three weeks rather than the average person who may cough for two or three days. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of your, that's part of your reactive airways. Well, when you laugh real hard, you start coughing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of your reactive airways. Doesn't mean that you, doesn't mean you need medication, but your airways are still more reactive than the average person. Mm-hmm. So, allergy and asthma—they're linked. They're not the same. Mm-hmm. Clearly, those people who have asthma who have absolutely no allergies, and there are lots of people with allergies, but they don't have asthma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the youngest age we can test people? A good question. You know, I, I personally don't find the skin to be a terribly good uh, target for testing under the age of one and a half. You know, even though allergy testing is less, skin testing is less traumatic than a blood test in an infant. And so, um, under the age of a year, I mean, there can be some value in doing testing, but often the immune system isn't mature enough to generate a response. So you will see a lot of false negatives. As I, as I said near the beginning of the show, uh, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology uh, at one of their recent meetings suggested that a lot of primary care doctors and internists really weren't up to the best uh, knowledge of causes and best treatments for allergies. Anything you would like to tell the uh, primary care doctors and internists that are listening to this show? 
Well, you know, I don't blame them because most uh, don't have like zero exposure to their training. Uh, even where we went to school, there was like minimal exposure to allergy as a, a medical student. Um, as I talked to our esteemed dean uh, at our uh, uh, get together a number of months ago, and and he admitted that at least at the university in their training programs, there isn't a whole lot of exposure. So, you know, the field of allergy is is somewhat still labeled as voodoo medicine. And so I see a number of patients that my internist says, oh, my internist couldn't decide whether to send me to a psychiatrist or an allergist, but maybe <laughs> an allergist is uh, uh, more acceptable. And uh, even though in this day and age, that's not the case. <laughs> so I don't blame the internist. They just have no training. And so a lot of what we try to do, uh, even though I don't do very much anymore, but, you know, we did a, used to do a certain amount of roundtables, uh, just to try and educate the primary care uh, physician, what we do, what's legit, what's not legit. What what would it take to change uh, the curriculum within the medical schools to get to get new medical students up to speed? Well, they actually both the Academy of Allergy and the College of Allergy have programs designed to get private practitioners involved in medical education, especially in those schools who have no allergy immunology department. You know, where we where we live, where we practice, Los Angeles and most of the major metropolitan areas, I mean, there is uh, significant immunology, allergy exposure within the medical school. But in so many schools, there's like no exposure and it's encouraging private practitioners to get involved in whatever school they're near to allow students to do electives. There are uh, teaching programs for the private practitioners, how to best educate medical students, residents, and even some of the faculty people who have no clue. When we talked about anaphylaxis and the epinephrine injection, how does uh, someone get a bracelet to have that warning, you know, allergic to this or allergic to that? Does that come from an allergist, primary care? What do people do if they have allergies and that can cause anaphylaxis and they want people to know that? Well, both primary care pediatricians, I think, may do a better job than uh, the internists, even family practitioners, in, in, in educating uh, their families. But uh, there should be, I know in my office, I keep brochures, and yes, there's the uh, Medical Alert Foundation. There are other things similar, uh, or we'll direct people to, uh, you know, websites that, but not in a plug for Medical Alert, but they're, they're, they're the grandfathers. They've been around the longest. They're the ones who I think uh, uh, do really good work in uh, cosmetically acceptable bracelets or, or cards for wallets uh, that and, people and should carry. We, we also uh, had a company that we interviewed called Allermates, and they created the bracelets and lunch boxes and the EPA, EpiPen cases for children. Okay. So their lunch boxes will say, I'm wheat gluten intolerant, or, you know, and it's all these great little comic creatures, and, and the kids actually put their bracelets together. So, so it's, huh. it's, it's not this, when I was growing up, we had that chain. Right, exactly. The, <laughs> the little the, dog tag, you know? right. cosmetically acceptable. Exactly. <laughs> now it's for kids. It's a little more fun now, and and I've seen the ones for adults too, which is yeah, a little more acceptable. <laughs> yeah. When you when you go on your treks, or when other people talk to you about them going on a trek, 
and they sometimes might ask about uh, medications that they should take in case they have an allergy. Uh, what do you recommend? Well, as a, you know, you know, antihistamines obviously is the, I guess, drug of choice. Uh, for and that folks. would be what? Benadryl or something else? Well, Benadryl is one of the first-generation antihistamines, still, uh, still probably the fastest-acting antihistamine. Unfortunately, it tends to be very sedating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what we call the second-generation antihistamines, they're not so new anymore. I mean, the Claritins, the Zyrtex, the Allegra's of the world have been on the market now for 16, 17, 18 years. Uh, they're all over the counter. They tend to be pretty much non-sedating, so that's a lot more people can remain functional while they're treating their symptoms. Depending on severity of reaction, uh, I'm pretty generous that uh, steroids work. Steroids work great mm-hmm. for allergies. Unfortunately, they have side effects when they're used on a consistent basis. Uh, they don't work right away. They can take hours before they kick in. But often I will tell someone, take your antihistamine, travel with some prednisone. That's your backup if you feel like things are escalating and not responding the way you would like. Obviously, epinephrine auto-injectors, depending on to, uh, the severity of their uh, reaction, risk of anaphylaxis, uh, become real necessary for uh, a lot of people. I, I see in a lot of over-the-counter medications now, they talk about uh, certain uh, over-the-counter drugs, blank, blank, PM, and this this is something that, aside from what it normally does, it helps you sleep. And if you look at the ingredients, it's actually Benadryl. Uh, in most cases where people are taking, and they're not sure that they don't know what it is. Some do, some don't. Uh, but how do you feel about people taking Benadryl just to go to sleep, knowing it's an antihistamine, really? Um, there's no evidence of develop- Well, okay. Uh, I mean, somebody can become tolerant, meaning that, you know, patients always ask, well, is there any downside of taking antihistamine every day? I have two cats. I know I'm allergic to the cats. I'm not getting rid of them. I'm not doing allergy shots. You know, I take my antihistamine. I can breathe. I don't sneeze. Sure, that's okay. It truly is safe. These things have been around for 90, 100 years. Uh, There are those patients who will develop a tolerance, so over time it becomes less effective. You switch to something else. The downside, you know, the risk of using Benadryl at night uh, I'm not sure there is a risk. Uh, you know, dry mouth is common. Uh, Benadryl is only a four to six hour product. So if somebody says, well, I wake up at four in the morning and I took my uh, PM at 10, right, it's not in your system anymore after three or four. And, but a lot of people don't, you're right, they don't, they see diphenhydramine. Mm-hmm. Most people know, oh yeah, Benadryl, that's an antihistamine. Uh, diphenhydramine, it must be a sleeping pill. It's safe, it's over the counter. So right. just... We're speaking with Michael Roberts, uh, Dr. Roberts. He's an allergist, immunologist, and specialist in asthma. Coming to the close of our show, and we would like you to share a health tip with our viewers. Well, it's something I try to practice on my own. Uh, it's two words. Step back. You know, in this society, everybody's pushing <laughs> forward. And everybody is like, uh, I sometimes think they're getting to the edge of the precipice. And so, like, step back. You know, listen, observe, listen to your body. And so that's really uh, my health tip for the day. You know, I think that one's going to make the 2014 uh, series. Oh, yes, it does. It will. (laughs) Definitely. Anytime we have two words that have so much in them, that's great. Michael, we... uh, in preparing for this show, is there anything that you wanted to speak about that we didn't get a chance to talk about today? That you want to tell people? 
Yeah, I'm going to put a plug in for allergy in general. I think sometimes we're a disrespected specialty, especially um, among um, mm-hmm. internists, primary mm-hmm. care, that they still think it's almost like voodoo medicine. All allergists do is put people on shots. That's not the case. I think uh, we do a much better job in, in uh, talking to patients. Uh, most of my colleagues at history, talking, hands-on. And I think we do a better job in providing asthma care uh, than primary care people, than pulmonologists. So uh, it's easy to self-refer. It's easy. Well, I shouldn't say it's easy anymore. It's with so many plans requiring authorizations and, and referrals. It may not be as easy, but if you have the option, you know, Call your allergist. Go to uh, go to the website, uh, the Academy of Allergy website, uh, the AA, quadai.org, or the American College website, acaaai.org. Uh, they're very educational. They answer lots of questions and can also uh, provide lists of uh, board-certified uh, allergists. We do it better. Uh, well said. And on that note... I'm very grateful to our special guest, uh, Dr. Michael Roberts, for sharing his wisdom and expertise and experiences with us. I would also like to honor and thank my teachers and healers for keeping me on my journey, thanking Christina and Segovia and all of Yoga Hub and all of our viewers and listeners to keep uh, following us on Magical Medical Tour. And I thank you, Michael, and I would like to say I look forward to seeing everyone and getting together next week as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until then, I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Glenn Wolman, and thank you, Dr. Michael Roberts. That was fun. You had me bouncing there. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yes, yes. Thank you. It's a, a wealth of information, and, and I hope that we've raised some awarenesses for for those families out there that uh, are, you know, that are a little nervous and <laughs> fearful. <laughs> and of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to connect with Dr. Michael Roberts, you can do so by following him on his web- website, westhillsallergy.com. WestHillsAllergy.com. And of course, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, GlennWoolman.com, where I do encourage you to learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. Again, we're always grateful for your feedback, comments, suggestions, um, and uh, especially after you've uh, listened to any of our uh, podcasts or uh, watched our videos. Um, please uh, give, make your comments. Uh, we'll get back to you. Or give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.